But Father, how thankful we are this night that we have Christ. And thank you that he is the greatest gift that could be given to sinful men and women. And we love to sing his praises. We love to set our hearts upon the truths of the gospel. And it's our joy to recount our personal testimony. We share the same testimony, really, just as we have sung. Your word tells us that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. All of us at one time walked according to the course of this world. We were by nature children of wrath. But you, the God of all grace and mercy, had a love prepared to work. Because of that great love, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive together with Christ. And by grace we are saved. It causes us to sing hallelujah. It causes us to praise you as our eternal God, to praise our Savior as the only Savior in Christ. It gives us reason to praise you, Holy Spirit. And we thank you for your abiding presence with us and ask that as we open the word this night, you would manifest yourself to us, strengthen us in mind and in heart, that we may receive your word as you give it, believe it, determine to obey it, and then by your grace and your strength, Go practice it. So help us this night, Lord Jesus, as we open the word. Speak to us, please. Convict our hearts of sin. Guide us in the way even that we should think. These things we pray in your precious and holy name. Amen. Would you open your Bibles this evening to Psalm 18? Psalm 18. Was this a great afternoon for a nap or what? You know, as we were headed out from uh, the morning together, the service and then life application groups, it was just starting to rain a little bit, and I heard that distant thunder, and I was ready to skip lunch and go straight to, you know, the prone position, raise the windows, listen to the rain, thunder. Um, I didn't do it quite then, but I did take a nap a little later. Praise God for rest like that. Um, thank you for coming back. I'm sure some of you were, were tempted to sleep a little longer, and you didn't. I'm not saying that you would have been unspiritual to do that, either. Uh, there are some who probably chose to stay in that prone position tonight, and God is delighted uh, in their rest. But you are here, and I'm glad for that. And as we look again at a psalm tonight, my prayer is that uh, you again would find, that we together would find, would find just a very personal word of testimony. Now, Psalm 18 is longer, so there's no way for us to, to try to tackle all of it. And what I've done is I've read through it over the last several days this week and, and tried to prepare a few thoughts for you tonight, is try to take really just a couple of key ideas that we find in it and uh, develop them in a helpful devotional way for you. 
So as we've been doing in this series, looking at the Psalms of David, I've really made it the priority to go after those Psalms that in the title give us some setting, some, some context. And this one does not give us enough specific information to say David wrote it at this moment or on this particular occasion, as some of the titles will indicate for us. But it does place it, I think, uh, in, in enough of its specific context to give us an idea of what has preceded this. So as, you look together, as we look together at this psalm, uh, look first of all at the title with me. David is writing to the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, having read that, I want you to go back to 2 Samuel 21 with me, please, because there really are a couple of options as to when this psalm was written. And one of those would be immediately following the death of Saul. And even though it was an occasion where David mourned, uh, as was right and fitting, uh, it was still a day of deliverance. Now, you're back at 2 Samuel 21 with me, and if you're looking at, at chapter headings and things like that, you're not going to see the death of Saul here in this section. And that's because I think that uh, this was probably not written on the immediate occasion of Saul's death, but rather toward the end of David's life. Now, why would I say that? Well, before I give you the answer, just look at the chapter heading here in, in 2 Samuel 21. David avenges the Gibeonites. And there was a wrong that David made right, and as, as horrific as it is, when we read through that, it still seems to be something that God desired because God is a God of justice. If you continue reading through chapter 21, you will see David then engage the Philistines in a couple of different key battles, and God gives him the victory over those enemies of God's people. Now look at chapter 22. David's song of deliverance, that's not an inspired heading, that's just what the editors have put into uh, our particular translation. But we read in verse 1, And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I'm saved from my enemies. Now let's end the reading right there, but go back to Psalm 18, and I want to resume our reading of Psalm 18, and I want you to pay close attention because you're going to see just a few differences, and I just want you to make a mental note of them. They're not even really going to be points of discussion, but nonetheless, there are some differences here. So after reading the title of this psalm, we come to verse 1, and David says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. We didn't see that back in, in 2 Samuel. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies." Already you can see there are a few little differences, but again, it's close enough that we would say it is essentially the same song. But here's what I want to direct your attention to. David, I believe, wrote this psalm at the end, toward the end of his life. 
Because if you continue reading through 2 Samuel 21, 22, and into 23, you'll actually come to the end of David's life very soon. There's a personal context for this psalm, and I think that it actually is a bit of a retrospective. He's looking back over a lifetime of God's personal ministry to him. Multiple occasions where he had to be delivered from the hand of an enemy. Multiple times where he had to be delivered from some kind of stress. And so maybe part of the reason the psalm is so long is that the testimony of God's work in his life is significantly long at this point. Let's look, though, at the, the personal context for Psalm 18. And I want you to notice that he begins with an expression of personal affection and love. This actually is a very unusual phrase, I love you, O Lord. And it's Lord with all the capital letters, Jehovah, the great I am, the self-existent God. David uses a term that is quite uncommon in, in the Old Testament. I love you. A term that speaks of intimate relationship, of deep personal affection. The phrase, I love you, as one author writes, communicates an intimacy of his relationship based on experience. Now, how has David's love for God grown to be uh, this kind of affection? Well, that's part of what this psalm will answer for us. So there is an expression of David's love, but I want you to notice with me as we continue reading, there is a description of David's distress. Look at verse 4 with me. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. It's fairly graphic. The cords of death encompassed me. That is, he pictures himself as having been completely surrounded. The torrents of destruction assailed me. That word assailed conveys the idea of, of David being terrified. I was gripped by sudden fear. The cords of Sheol entangled me. It is as if the ropes of the grave itself have wrapped themselves around David with the intention of pulling him into the afterlife. And the snares of death... They confront him. And the word confront really conveys a little more than what might be on the surface of our English translation. It has the idea of rushing against suddenly. The snares of death have rushed against me suddenly. And they rushed against him often through his lifetime. Verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. That word distress speaks very specifically of a state of very unfavorable circumstances. It's not any different from the way you and I use that word today. The stress of very unfavorable circumstances. You know, as you meditate on this psalm, and we will go a little further, so you'll see exactly what I'm talking about, but the stress of the very unfavorable circumstances was something God used to grow David's love for him. Do you ever feel like you are completely engulfed by distress? And if you're a human being and your heart beats and you breathe in and out, then the answer is yes. And I see some of you who are very young and you may not be able to answer that yes, but you will in time. I'm sorry. I know you were hoping for more encouraging words, but uh, we'll get there. Right? But we're going to face reality. 
sooner or later in the course of human existence, you will be engulfed by unfavorable circumstances. But from David's vantage point at the end of his life, this is the context in which God proved himself, and this is the context in which God began to grow David's deep and intimate affection for him. Remember, this, this intimacy, as I stated a moment ago, was developed out of personal experience with God. So that brings us into a question. What were the things that David learned about God when he was engulfed in unfavorable circumstances? Well, that's where if we keep reading through this, he says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord to my God. I cried for help from his temple. He heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. And then he begins to describe the deliverance that God gave him. And and I won't take time to read through all of this, but listen to just a few of these phrases. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. He was angry on David's behalf. Now those verses and what follows those, those few phrases that I've just read to you, you have to tie back to the beginning of the psalm. So let's go back to the first couple of verses. Verse 2, the, or verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is... My rock, my fortress, my deliverer. There are actually nine different descriptions that David uses with reference to God. So let's take time to work through these because these are the things that David learned through experience were true of his God. These are things that that have bearing on how God acted on David's behalf. God's character is the thing that began to awaken David's affection, the thing that began to stir his great love for this God so that he could say, I love you, O Lord. I love you, O Lord, my strength. That's the first word of description that David writes referring to God, my strength, that which makes us able to do something. There's physical strength that all of us have, and there's a different kind of strength that David is referring to. You know, we really have no strength on our own, do we? Even the strength you have at this moment is a gift that comes from God's hand. We take that strength for granted until our health fails or until we are confined in a setting where we can't employ all of it. But we recognize sooner or later that we are people of limitations. David is writing, God is my strength. God is the believer's strength when he is weary beyond description. God is the strength of his people when their load is too heavy to carry. God is the strength of his beloved ones when their resources of wisdom and understanding are exhausted and they say, we don't know what we should do. God is, as David writes, the strength of life. Second of all, look again at the text with me. He's not only our strength, he is our rock. The rock, this particular term, refers to a stronghold, a place of hiding or a defensive position. You should even think these two words, concealment and security. Concealment and security. Now, we've, we've only spent a brief amount of time considering the Psalms of David, but we're well aware of the fact that he was continually hunted down by Saul, continually threatened by the enemy armies. These are, these are military terms and concepts that he is bringing forward at this point. And there were many occasions where he needed to be concealed and secured by God himself. 
But it is not merely a physical concealment and security that David writes of. It is not merely a, a, a physical concealment and security that causes him to praise this God. For this God is his rock of hiding when his heart has been assaulted and attacked by his own sin. And so it is for you and me. When our hearts are battered by our own sin, this God is a rock. When our hearts are battered by the sin of others, this God is a rock. He is my rock of security when family and friends do not come to our aid. We often look at those relationships around us with expectations that they will be a kind of rock or place of security and concealment for us. And sometimes they are, and praise God for those relationships. But there are often times where the people who are nearest and dearest are not what they should be. That leaves us vulnerable, doesn't it? This God is a rock for those who are vulnerable. Number three, he says, God is my fortress, a place where one would reside while hiding. Again, a defensive position. And one author notes that it makes reference to natural land formations in the high inaccessible rocks or hill areas. You can picture David again in some of the settings that we have covered previously seeking a a high place of security, a fortress. God is our fortress. And you need to think thoughts like this. He is my fortress when I feel exposed and vulnerable to the attacks of the accuser of the brethren. The accuser, as he is called the devil, as he is called throughout the scriptures, will take every advantage to accuse you in your own heart. You need a high place of defense at that moment. You need higher ground. God is that fortress for you. God is my fortress when I am helpless to defend my reputation against false accusation and slander. It's not just the adversary who is the accuser. It's often that he stirs up other people with false accusation and slander. And how do you defend yourself against that? You need a God like this. You need a God who says, I am your fortress. Look at the next word with me, if you will, please. The fourth thing that David states here is that God is his deliverer, a rescuer, the God who saves him and places him in safety. God is my deliverer when temptation is strong and my flesh is weak. God is my deliverer when my political leaders seem intent on doing wickedly. God is my deliverer when my heart is vulnerable. A true rescuer is our God. Number five, David says, my God, my God, a very personal God. Back in these ancient days, there were all kinds of gods the nations worshipped, and some of them were regional gods. If you were in a particular area, you'd find out who the local deity was, and then you'd worship in the prescribed way or offer the sacrifices that you prescribed or do the thing that the, 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 the citizens of that particular vicinity said was important to keep that local deity happy. Can you imagine? If you were traveling internationally in our day and age, you not only have to have your passport, sometimes a visa, but you've got to check out who the local deity is to make him happy. The deity that 
David speaks of is not one who is localized in a particular setting. And it's not only that he is a deity of all the earth. This is the God of whom we may say he is my God, a personal God, a God who draws near to those who believe his word, who walk by faith, who call upon him. Not a God who is personally controlled or manipulated by people like us, but a God who enters into a relationship with us. As we press on, David writes, my rock in whom I take refuge. And he uses a different word for rock. There's really no secret meaning here, but there may be just a little different point of emphasis that David is trying to make here. Could just be like any other poet who is writing who looks for synonyms and different options of words at a particular point. But one author suggests that while the first use of the word translated into the English rock suggests the idea of concealment and security. The second suggests that of strength and immobility, the immovable God. We sometimes even speak of a family member, often a a father or a grandfather, who is just a real force of stability in the family, and you will hear people speak of one like that as a rock. He was the rock of our family. He was always like a rock, and we mean the same thing that David means here. This is the God who is immovable. He's fixed. He's not going to be shaken, moved off of his position. We also see this being used in two other passages that are well known to you, and if not, then you should know them. Back in Deuteronomy 32, after God has delivered Israel miraculously, bringing him through the Red Sea, decimating Pharaoh's army, which was like the last little point of strength that Pharaoh could look to in his land. Crops have been destroyed. The people have been absolutely plundered. Israel has left the nation. He has no more workforce. And so he sends his army after them to bring them back into slavery. And when the people of Israel stand against the Red Sea, the army pressing in against them, God opens up a mighty deliverance, rescues them as they pass on dry ground through that uh, deep body of water, and then swallows up Pharaoh's army. Israel stands on the other side beholding the work of God and Moses breaks out in song and it's recorded for us in Deuteronomy 32. And in verse 4 he sings, He, that is Jehovah, is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. And every one of those particular attributes that is true of God It is absolutely true for our benefit, and we must think of them as unchangeable because He, the rock, is unchangeable. Isaiah uses this term in another passage that many of you have held to in times of difficulty. He wrote in chapter 26, verses 3 and 4, You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast, or those whose minds are stayed on thee. That's how some of you memorized it. Because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord Himself is the rock eternal. And a legitimate and literal way to translate that last phrase would be, the Lord is the rock of ages. It's one of our favorite hymns, isn't it? The rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. 
my rock in whom I take refuge. The next thing that David writes in Psalm 18 is that he is my shield. Technically speaking, in military terms, it it, it refers to a smaller shield that was used for defensive purposes, often made of leather to protect from attack. We're not saying that God is literally a shield with leather stretched over some kind of form. But he is protection from attack. You know, as I was meditating on this, the thought, the question came into my mind, you know, how else can God prove his power to protect except that we be exposed to things that threaten us? And my mind immediately went on to say, you know, honestly, I think I'd rather know this about God in theory, in the safety of a classroom setting, than by experience. Wouldn't you? I don't like the thought of being exposed to harm or difficulty. And I think very often we would just like to take the passing grade or get the passing grade because we checked the right box or filled in the right bubble, you know, on our, on our heavenly scantron. We take the test. Is God a shield? Yes. Got the answer right. But that's not how God is interested in teaching us of his character, is it? In real time, this is a difficult point for us to come, but I think we have to humble ourselves and accept what God has designed for us, that by difficult experience, he would prove himself. And you know, there's no saint in heaven right now at this moment who would, who would go back in life and trade even the most difficult of experiences and the subsequent lessons they learned. Rather, they would look back on those difficulties and say, those were very precious times when the Lord was proving to me what it means that he is a shield. Theory also doesn't make for the kind of passionate praise or deep personal affection that first-hand experience works. You know, sometimes we even think to ourselves as we read the Psalms, I suspect all of you have felt this as I have, boy, I wish I could write things like this. David did not write this in the safety of a classroom or a writing room. He didn't find a quiet place at the local coffee shop where he could just think about God for a little while and, you know, bang out on the keyboard, a beautiful psalm. These words were born out of overwhelming, difficult circumstances. He's my shield. And then he says, the horn of my salvation. The word horn has been variously understood, one author writes, as the protection provided by the horn of of a bull, a strong animal. It's also been used to refer to the asylum of the horns of the altar. A person who was desperate would cling to the horns of the altar, a sign of of being absolutely dependent upon God and begging for mercy. The horn is a term also used to refer to those hills or mountaintops 
that were shaped like a horn. There's a very famous one, all of you are familiar with it, the matter horn. So it's been a term that's been around for a long, long time. And while we aren't cannot be sure specifically of, of which of these David might have in mind. It seems, though, that it is a symbol, as this author goes on to write, a symbol of strength, but a reference, but, but as a theological reference, it denotes, listen to this, I think this is, this is just a very powerful image for me. It denotes the vertical intrusion of Yahweh's power and victory against the kingdoms of man. The vertical intrusion of Yahweh, Jehovah's power and victory over the kingdoms of man. David has seen it. He's at a point in his life where he has had multiple enemies rise against him, seen the purposes of God as they were revealed to him when Samuel first anointed him, seen those very purposes threatened time and time again. And yet here he stands, living, while many others are dead. He is known by experience what it means that God, as the horn of His salvation, has intruded His own sovereign will when enemies raise their might and their power against David. Such intrusion is what David had not only witnessed, but now sings of at the end of his days. His heart is full of love for God because his God is a horn of salvation. The final phrase that he uses to describe describe God is that he is my stronghold. And again, it's a term that conveys security of high places, places that are so high as to be beyond the reach of the enemy. Well, if you begin to think practically and personally, again, you you begin to meditate and, and think thoughts like these. God is my stronghold when there are more questions than there are answers. When my soul would be mired in that confusion and desperation, God is the one who lifts us from that difficulty and confusion and begins to give clarity. And even though, we may not even though we may not answer all the questions that we ask him or give us perfect understanding of every situation, he begins to assure us that he is the God who is present with us. He is the God who is working. He is the God who is a stronghold. He is a secure height when we are threatened and harassed by any and all enemies. My stronghold. Well, those personal attributes of God, those characteristics that David has learned by experience are part of why he now says, I love you, O Lord. I love you. But we proceed and go back to verse 7 with me and for a few minutes that remain here, we'll just consider very basic, uh, some very basic concepts concerning God's work. His character stirs our love. His work stirs our love. He says, Uh, In verse 3, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I'm saved from my enemies. I call, I am saved. And then he begins to describe this rescue. Look at verse 7. The earth reeled and rocked. We began to read through this. Verse 8, smoke went up from his nostrils. Verse 9, he bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. What an awesome sight as you continue reading through this particular paragraph that the majesty of glory from on high is stirred to action. The powerful 
cherub becomes his steed, as it were, his mode of transportation, and the wind are his wings, and the created elements his weapons of war, and with his voice he unleashes a rescuing flurry. To God's enemies, this is cataclysmic intervention, but to God's beloved one, like David, like you, it is magnificent rescue. What a contradiction that for one, it's absolute terror, and for the other, it's absolute joy. Cataclysm for enemies, comfort for God's servant. A a magnificent rescue. It's also a personal rescue. Look with me, if you will, at verse 16. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And this furious rescue is actually evidence to David of a marvelous truth. God delights in him. Again, we are struck by the fact that this is not a perfect man. He'll go on in the psalm to describe how, according to my righteousness, he has rescued me. So David, looking back on his life, many of the the failures and, and faults that you would discover if you walked with him, it cannot be because he was perfectly righteous at every point, but rather that his life was characterized by a righteousness born out of his faith in God, born out of his childlike trust in the word of God, born out of a desire truly to obey and honor and serve this great God. But above all of that service and ministry that David rendered to God was this grand truth. He delights in me. Do you believe that God delights in you? It's very hard for some of you to believe, isn't it? Because you look at your life and it's a mess. And you look at your efforts to serve God and they seem so inadequate. And you look back on a number of decisions that you've made and commitments that you've made through the years and it seems like you've broken every one of them or at least just, you know, the the excitement just kind of tailed off and your enthusiasm is diminished and your heart just doesn't seem as warm toward the Lord. Do you know something? If you are God's child, He delights in you. He finds joy in you. You are a joy to His heart. We could go on. It is a rescue that corresponds to David's righteousness, verse 24. It's a merciful rescue, verse 27. It's a perfect rescue, verse 30. But here's the thought I want to leave you with, and we're going to conclude here. To be able to have that kind of personal testimony that the psalm opens with, I love you, O Lord, a deep and intimate affection that is grown out of personal experience means that you have to be willing to let God lead you through the difficult circumstances. But know that as he does, it is with the intention that he would demonstrate, first of all, what he is. A rock. A fortress. A shield. And as he demonstrates to you what he is, It happens as he rescues, as he delivers, as he provides, as he protects. All of that work of God is connected to all of his character as God. And there really is no other way for us to love God, to grow in our intimate 
uh, affection for him outside of experiences like those. That's a point, honestly, of wrestling. May not be for you at this moment, but it will be. Every one of us reaches, reaches points multiple times in, in our Christian walk where we say, Lord, I don't like where I am. I don't like the way this feels. I don't like the stress that I'm living with. I don't like the unfavorable circumstances that are just swirling around me. And it seems more like the cords of death are about to drag me into the grave. But David said, I called. He heard and answered. Beloved, that's a testimony that is true for every believer who calls. Some of you need to call on God tonight. You haven't done it to this point. You've been trying to get your, figure your own way out of the difficult circumstances, but God continues to let you go a little deeper, lets you experience a little greater frustration, lets you become a little more weary so that you would reach a point where you say, I'm calling. And in his kindness, and because he delights in you, he will answer. Some of you have been calling. And honestly, it seems at this point that God is not hearing you, and you're still waiting for the big deliverance. You know, remember, when, when we read books like First and Second Samuel and the lives of, of Saul and David and Samuel are unfolded before us, I mean, you could read the entirety of their lives in less than a couple of hours, but it, it, it took place over years. And Psalm 18 wasn't written in an afternoon. It really seems to be the culmination of a lifetime of faith. Let God do His work. Let God prove himself. Let God be God. But keep calling. Keep calling. Our love for God is something that he wants to grow and we want him to grow it. These are the circumstances in which he proves himself and we find reason to praise him. And I think that the greatest praise will come in eternity. We have moments of great praise here. But I believe that the greatest praise will come in eternity when we are delivered once and for all, when we may look back on a lifetime of distress and say with David, I love you, O Lord, my strength, my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. Until that day, let's endure in faith. Let's go forward in the hope that this is the same God who is at work today. And let's encourage one another with these words, praying for one another lifting each other up, speaking words of comfort and encouragement. We need that, and God calls us to it.